0: Good afternoon, Storehouse. Our reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians nine, nineteen through 23, and it says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you did not catch Andrew, we're going to find ourselves in the New Testament. We're looking at First Corinthians chapter nine, verses nineteen to twenty-three. And as you open or load your Bible, let me just begin with a short story or some a story through someone else. In his book, Start with Why, author Simon Sinek, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, he provides the story of, uh, of of the first powered man flight, which basically means the airplane, right? The history of the airplane. At the start of the 19th century, there was a man named Samuel Langley, and Samuel Langley was a well-known physicist and inventor and in the early 1900s he was given a grant and financially supported by the u.s war department on developing the very first airplane Samuel, who wanted to be credited with the first manned flight, was really well-connected. He was connected to dudes like Alexander Graham Bell uh, and other individuals up in New York. And so when he was given this grant, when he was given this mission, he set out to accomplish this goal. And there was really nothing that was stopping him. He had cash. Again, he was given this big grant. In our day, it's a little bit more than a million dollars. He had massive resources and tons of connections to get the job done. On top of that, because of his influence, Influence, And because of his connections and because the U.S. War Department was backing him, the New York Times was pretty much following him around all day, every day, trying to capture every one of his moves as he set out to build the first airplane. And on December 7th, 1903, on what he called the Buzzard, Samuel attempted this first flight. And it was a total bummer, right? The newspaper went on to say that Samuel Langley wrecked and ruined This plane, or the buzzard, as he called it, A few days later in Dayton, Ohio, there were these two brothers who owned a bicycle shop, and you may know them as the Wright brothers, and they too were in the game of mastering man flight or getting to be the first ones in the air. Unlike Samuel, they had no budget, they had none of the world's best minds helping them, they had no crowds, the New York Times wasn't following them, and the resources that they had was whatever it is that consisted of their bike shop. And on December 17th, just a few days after Langley's attempt, on December 17th, the Wright brothers succeeded in what is known and recorded as the first flight in American history. A few days later, after Langley receives the the news that the Wright brothers uh, were able to fly their plane, rather than receiving that news and saying, man, how could I build on it? How could I make it better? How could I now be in competition with them? A few days later, Langley quit. And he quit because he was no longer the first, he was no longer going to receive any kind of self-glory, he wasn't going to receive more influence, and so he just bailed. For the Wright brothers, their why is what fueled their what. The vision of being the first in the air and doing whatever it took is what got these brothers out of bed every single morning. You might be wondering, well, how does this connect to our text Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, we get this insight into what got the Apostle Paul out of bed every morning. For Paul, he had the greatest motivation, the greatest why of all, and that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, it was Paul's deep conviction of the gospel that got him out of bed every morning, and it is what had him convinced to share the message of the gospel with anyone and everyone without compromise, in our text, we'll see his conviction of the gospel as every time he meets with individuals, it never gets watered down. It never gets watered down as he interacts with a culture. And, by, and make no mistakes, Paul uses cultural, what we can call tactics. He uses cultural tactics to contextualize the gospel. To contextualize means to, to use behavior or language in order to make something like a message relatable, or relevant, and so Paul uses tactics to contextualize the gospel in order to see people saved, in order to see people come to faith in Jesus. And so in our current series, Who We Are, we've been examining each one of our values as a church. We began several weeks ago with gospel centrality, then we looked at biblical community, then last week we considered equipping, and now we come to missional living, which basically means how we are to live and interact with our community, particularly those who do not know Jesus My man Paul was convinced, as we'll see, that contextualization was important, but contextualization without Christ is compromise. And so we're going to observe a couple of principles that Paul embraces that are going to lead us to require courage and step into tension. And then afterwards, we're going to conclude with a couple of thoughts. But let me pray, and then we'll dig into our text this afternoon. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for allowing us to gather, for allowing us to have our Bibles open, to uh, praise your name, to exalt Jesus, Lord, and to consider our hearts this afternoon. Therefore, we ask that you would lead us to confess Christ with our lives, that you would convict us of sin where necessary, and that by your Holy Spirit, you would compel us to change for your glory and our good. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, before we consider Paul's missional and cultural tactics, let's first consider the context of our passage. We need to understand why Paul is writing to the Corinthians and then ultimately making this argument. So there's a couple of things I want you to know. First, first. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians, uh, or if you don't, it is a young church that the Apostle Paul planted, and these Christians are basically wilding out. I've said this before, that if 1 Corinthians had a a tagline, it would be, 1 Corinthians, Christians gone wild, right? Like, that's essentially, in a nutshell, what's going on in this church. And so, Paul has been writing to them in order to correct much of their thinking and much of their behavior. He's been helping them by exhorting them through the lens of the gospel. And in order to understand chapter 9, we need to briefly consider chapter 8. And so one of the things that's going on in chapter 8 is that the Corinthians are wanting to eat sacrificed meats in pagan temples. And so they want to go back to the temple, they want to eat some sacrificed meats, and they want to hang out there in the temple. And to them, they don't see a problem with this because to them, hey, there's nothing spiritual about this. It's just meat. We want to eat meat. It's in the temple. Sure. Why not? I smell tacos, we're gonna go. That was their thing, right? Like, that's their motivation. But Paul pushes back on them because he's ultimately saying, hey, the way you're going about this, right, the way you're going about this brings reproach to the gospel. It brings reproach to the gospel because not only is it idolatrous, right, not only are you hanging out in pagan temples, sitting in pagan temples, eating what they're doing or what they're they're sacrificing, not only is it idolatrous, but it's going to bring confusion to the gospel. It's going to bring confusion to those who are skeptical about the gospel and are trying to figure out what does it look like to be a Christian. It's going to be confusing to Christians who are young in their faith and maybe they're weak in their conscience, and so now you're making them stumble And ultimately, what you can do when you compromise in this way is sin could slowly become tolerated. And so Paul's pushing back on them and ultimately telling them that just because they don't buy into the spirituality of sacrificed meat doesn't mean it's a good idea. Ultimately, he tells them that they need to lay their preferences aside, especially if it hinders the advancing of the gospel. And so that's in chapter 8, and so it brings us to chapter 9, where he's kind of building this case on them laying down their preferences. And he does so by explaining to them on how he lays down some of his preferences without causing others to stumble or without compromising the message of the gospel. So as we get to the end of chapter 9, and Paul opens by saying, for though I am free from all, in other words, what he's saying is, he's not captive by any kind of entanglements to any group or any social circle. What he says instead is, because I am free, I have made myself a servant to all. So for Paul, he's saying, because of my freedom in Christ, I use that in order to serve others. I use that in order to minister and share the gospel with others. And I'm going to tell you how I do that, but without compromising the gospel, unlike what you fools are doing. And so that's ultimately what he's telling the Corinthians. And so to that effect, we go into the first thing. And so what I want to consider, what I want us to consider is Paul's why. So he's telling them, I serve those outside of my circles. I I use my freedom in order to share the gospel, and I use a couple of different tactics. But before I tell you what I use, before I tell you how I use them, let me give you the why. And it's in verse 23. Here's what Paul says. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, for Paul, his why is what I'm calling redemptive, urgency. Paul is and does not waste any time in getting to the punchline about Jesus saving sinners, no matter who he's around. Paul writes that everything he does is for the sake of the gospel. And so how does he create this redemptive urgency? Because he writes that it does it all for the sake of the gospel. It means that Paul is committed to the holistic nature Of the gospel. In other words, for Paul, the gospel is not just for him, it's for anyone who would believe. His redemptive urgency, in other words, i got to get the gospel known to people who don't know Jesus, his redemptive urgency is promoted by gospel centrality. It is the most important thing to Paul. The message and power of the gospel is what gets him out of bed every single morning. His entire life has been shaped first by what God has done for him, and then that informs the way in which he lives. All of Paul's letters are consistent with that type of argument. This is what God has done for you in Christ. So he's talking about this vertical relationship that we have been reconciled to God through Jesus. Over and over again, Paul reminds us of our identity. And then he transitions by saying, because of who we are, this is how we live. And this is consistent with his commitment to the gospel, For instance, to the Romans, he tells them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. In this same letter to 1 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, we considered 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. So for Paul, redemptive urgency is promoted by gospel centrality. In the context of this passage, it is because of what Christ has done for him that he's willing and able to share the news with anyone who will give him a hearing. In this passage, you constantly see the word win. He says it about five times in this passage. Now, he's not using that in terms of a language of competition. Like, I want to be the best Christian. I want to make sure that my Uh, that my metrics are good, I want to make sure that I met my quota. This isn't a competition for Paul. The word win in 1 Corinthians 9 for Paul is that he gains an audience. In other words, I'm doing whatever it takes when he says, "I to the Jew I became a Jew so that I might win some. He's saying, to the Jew I became a Jew so that I might gain their ear, so that I might gain an audience from them, so that I might win their attention, and ultimately share the gospel with him. It's not a competition. Paul's heart is for those who don't know Jesus. See, the gospel doesn't simply inform Paul on how to live. It reveals to him the reality of sin. That's what the gospel does for you and I. Right, That Jesus in saving us regenerates our hearts and now our eyes are also renewed to see the depravity of the world around us. And for Paul, his motivation, yes, is for the sake of the gospel, because he wants sinners saved. He wants them to come and know Jesus. And we see this in several of his letters where you hear his heart. For instance, in Romans 9, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience Bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Here it is that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He has this anguish in his heart to see people come and know Jesus. And here he's just being honest with the Romans saying, Man, if I could lose my salvation so that they would know Jesus. I'd be down for it. I hate that they don't know Jesus. He has this burden for people to come and know Jesus. In the passage, he constantly says that I might save some, that I might save some so that they might be saved. And the word saved here is intentional because it's not some random type word where he's trying to use Christianese language. He's saying, I want them saved from the wrath of God. Consider Romans 5. Paul writes, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die, even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, here it is, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He doesn't want them to be saved just so that they would be good people, just so that they would start coming to church, just so that they would get hooked up in a community group. He wants them to be saved so that they would be saved from the wrath of God. Look, you and I cannot forget this, especially as like America, the American church, you and I cannot forget this. We have been saved from the wrath of God. To the Ephesians, Paul says that we were children of wrath, dead in our sin. Cultural Christians or cultural Christianity will say, hey, God is love, period. Yes, God is love, and God is also patient, and God has a holy hatred for sin. You and I cannot forget what we were saved from. We cannot forget the central message of the gospel work for us, that Jesus has saved us through his sinless life, substituting himself under the wrath of God that we deserve, redeeming us from our sin, giving us his righteousness, and reconciling us to the Father. Like, park on that for a little bit. We have been saved from the wrath of God, Paul has been saved from the wrath of God. That's why he wants other people to come and know Jesus, so that they would be saved from the wrath of God too. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what Paul wants for his friends. This is what Paul wants for anyone who doesn't know Jesus. You and I can't forget that. So before we consider tactics or methods, we must first remember what is of first importance, the gospel. This is central to everything we are and everything we do. When our our lives are shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are compelled to make him known. Notice, when our lives are shaped by the gospel, not just when we remember it, not just because we have some verses on our biography on social media, not just because we have this frame on our desk that says John 3.16, but when our lives are shaped by the gospel, we are compelled to make him known. Whatever it is we give our attention to is what informs our way of living. And if we cannot see a need for redemptive urgency lived out in our life, then maybe we've been shaping our life around something outside of the gospel. Redemptive urgency is always promoted by gospel centrality. And so now that we know Paul's why, right, which is redemptive urgency, it's, it's that gospel that he once preached. Now we move to how this begins to take shape. In other words, what is redemptive urgency compel Paul to do? Okay, so then how does he go and share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus? And so what I want us to consider is this thing called relational intentionality. A lot of R's in the sermon today, right? So, so we have redemptive urgency, now we got relational intentionality. And uh, we're gonna find this in verses 20 to 22. And so we're gonna look at, at a couple of things, one in particular that that come out of the phrase I became. So if you're taking notes, if you're highlighting, all that stuff, I want you to underline the phrase, I became. Uh, We're going to talk about that at length in a little bit, but for now, we're going to consider this one insight, and that is posture over preference. Okay? So let's go to verse 20. So Paul says, here it is. Finally, verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, okay? So that's what we're ultimately looking at. Earlier in this passage, Paul goes on to say that he is a servant to all. Right? meaning in the context of the Jews and, and those outside the law, which are Gentiles, individuals not of the Jewish tradition, and then those who are weak. We'll get into that in just a minute. Paul says that he became a servant or a slave to them, meaning that his whole relational intentionality means that he adopted as much of their cultural traditions, as much of their language, as much of their interaction as he could without compromising the gospel. To the Jew, I became like the Jews. To the Gentiles, I became like the Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak. Whatever it is, I could do. Whatever it is, I could adopt. Whatever it is, I could become. I did that for their sake, but without compromise of the gospel. And I want you to look at the parentheses that are found in verse 20. Though not not being myself under the law. And then again in verse 21. uh, Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. The parentheses there are like side notes. He's, he's saying, these are things I did not give up. In other words, I didn't lose my gospel identity when I became like a Jew to the Jews. I didn't lose my gospel convictions when I hung out with the Gentiles. I didn't lose my, my convictions about the gospel and about Jesus Christ when I hung out with those who were weak. I didn't lose myself. I, I adopted and adapted myself as much as I could without compromise. What I want us to consider is Paul's posture. I want you to consider his his posture here because his posture leads into him laying down preferences. So again, he says, I became a slave to all, a servant to all, meaning he willingly laid down some of his preferences in order to win a hearing or audience without compromising the gospel gospel posture and the laying down of your personal preferences takes great humility because what's his motivation i want to win some to the gospel I want them to come and know Jesus. So if there are things I can set aside, if there are things that I can do in order to meet them where they are, that's what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to compromise my identity. I'm not going to bring reproach to the gospel. I'm not going to compromise conviction. Paul wants to do whatever it takes to contextualize the gospel without compromising it. And so when he says that, you know, to the Jews, I became a Jew. In other words, he's saying, if you followed me, He's telling the Corinthians, he's telling us, if you followed me for a week, on Monday you would see me hanging out with my Jewish friends over a kosher meal, and we'd be talking about the Mosaic Law, and I would ultimately be challenging them and using some of that language in order to teach them about Jesus, in order to point them to Jesus who has ultimately, uh, who has ultimately done everything that the sacrificial system requires. And he says, then if you follow me on Tuesday, I'm going to be hanging out with the Gentiles on the other side of town, eating bacon sandwiches. And as I'm talking with them, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. As I hang out with those who are weak, the, the word weak is, he means someone who's weak in conscience, someone who is struggling. So an example here would be, let's say, an individual who, who <clears throat> was a former alcoholic. Paul saying, I'm not hanging out at the pubs with him. We're having topo chicos at my house on Wednesday. I'm not going to take him to the pub. You find me there on Wednesday. So for us, what would that then look like. You could say, man, on Monday, we're hanging out at Roosevelt's and we're talking with Bassam about the gospel and how much Jesus saves sinners. And then on Tuesday, we're having Taco Tuesdays, depending on where you're in in McAllen. There's a lot of different shops, right? Wednesday, we're having Loteria with our family, with our grandma or grandpa. Thursday, uh, Paul's saying, I'm hanging out in South McAllen and La Valboa, and, and I'm hanging out in Los Encinos Park. Friday, I'm at the library hanging out with the nerds and talking with the hipsters at coffee shops. Saturdays, it's fajita fellowship because all the family always comes over to the house. Sunday morning, I'm hanging out at the Bulga, watching some lucha libre, and then talking to those wrestlers about Jesus. That's what Paul's ultimately saying. He's like, man, whatever I can do To preach the gospel to those who don't know Jesus without compromise, I'm going to do it. Without losing myself, I'm going to do it. So Paul meets people where they are. He culturally adapts as much as he can without compromise. And he says, for the sake of the gospel, meaning Paul gets to the punchline. Because he wants to see them saved. He wants to see them know Jesus. He wants them saved from the wrath of God. Listen, if you try to make the message of the gospel relatable or relevant and you never get to Jesus, that's compromise because it's more about your comfort than theirs. And this is where that phrase, all things to all people, becomes misused Right, oh, the reason I'm, uh, I'm hanging out at pubs or I'm hanging out at certain places but I didn't get to the punchline is because, you know, I'm just trying to be like them. No, 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 that's, that's compromise. You see this in a variety of circles with Christians. For example, when Christians date non-Christians, what do we uh, comically call it? right? It's called missionary dating, right? No, I just, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to wait and see if they, they're going to ask me questions about the gospel, and, you know, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them know about Jesus, and they're going to see my walk, but you never get to the punchline, Or, or, or when we're hanging out in certain settings, right, around non-Christians, around our family and friends who don't know Jesus, and they're making some really uncomfortable comments and you don't want to lean into it, right, and you're just like, man, as, as long as they see my behavior, it'll be good, right? And, but you never get to the punchline. And there's many reasons for not getting to the punchline. Some of you may struggle with the fear of man, Right? And the thing is, if I get to the punchline, I might be rejected by my family. I might be ridiculed by my friends. Some of you don't get to the punchline because I don't want to offend my friends and my family. And the gospel is an offensive message. And the gospel says that you and I are sinners separated from God and in rebellion against him. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to God. Yeah, that's, that's offensive. But more than fear of man, more than maybe being offensive, I, those are real reasons. I just don't think those are the top ones. Because it's not like we don't know how to share the gospel. We might be nervous. We might trip over our words, right? You might totally misquote scripture, right you might be stuttering and all it's not that we don't know how to do it i think i think it's because we're indifferent one scholar said it this way the only thing worse than hate is indifference it's that we really don't care this is my thing not your thing just don't bring that over here to me. Yeah, I think it's that we're indifferent. Paul's relational intentionality shows him stepping in to all of these different kind of social circles, trying to honor them as best as he can, love them where they are, and sometimes make it uncomfortable which we'll get to in a minute. But he sometimes makes it uncomfortable. One other scholar said it this way, I have always felt that the reason Jesus is so widely treated as nice and irrelevant, offering a salvation that no one really needs, is that people don't really believe that the problem exists that he came to solve. Many Christians right, that redemptive urgency is that sinners are under the wrath of God and the gospel has the power to save us. We forget that. When we forget it, we become indifferent. Or we're captivated by it when we first become a Christian and then we assume that everybody gets it and then once we assume, we forget it and then once we forget it, We're indifferent. Paul contextualizes the gospel among those he's around, not because he's trying to be hip and cool, but because he's convinced of the gospel. He's willing and able to meet people where they are. He's willing to lay down his preferences, all so that he would gain an ear so that they might be saved. Paul was committed to the gospel and expected those who said the same to live similarly. In Galatians 2, Paul calls Peter out, or he tells the story of calling Peter out. Peter was living similarly to Paul, and so we see that Peter is hanging out in the city called Antioch, and he's eating with Gentiles, those not of the Jewish background. And so, man, he's eating bacon sandwiches, and he's eating some barbecue, and he's like, this is amazing. And then the, Jewish, uh, the Jews show up, and Peter says, I don't know you, never mind. And so Paul steps into that with Peter Then he says, hey, man, I heard that you tend to hang out with the Gentiles, and I love that. I love barbecue also. By the way, when the Jews showed up, you backed out and said you didn't know them. And Peter's like, yeah, so? Paul says, that's out of step with the gospel. You've compromised, Peter. Paul is willing to step into situations that might be a little uncomfortable, all for the sake of winning some. Listen, methods always change, but we are not married to methods. We are married to the message. The question is, do we care? See, for Paul, it wasn't about convenience, but the urgency of salvation. Relational intentionality without the redeemer is compromise. Third observation, everything that I just mentioned creates a lot of discomfort. (laughs) You're not wrong, because it is uncomfortable. Yet the gospel compels us to have this renewed sense of discomfort. That's how urgent, powerful, and magnificent it is. So let's consider the phrase one last time. Paul says, I became, right, once more, I became. He says it five times. And so it's not just having to deal with intentionality, meeting people where they are. It's a willingness to step inside other people's spaces for the sake of the gospel. That's where the tension and courage come in. When you consider Acts 14 and 17 and 19, we see Paul showing up on the scene and he's always asking the same questions. Where's the synagogue? Because I'm gonna go preach to the Jews. Where are the Gentiles? Because I'm gonna go preach to them. And it was incredibly uncomfortable at times. When he would preach to the Jews, some texts say that they grew angry and enraged and stubborn. Sometimes they even kicked him out of the city. When he went to the Gentiles, he was learning about all of their philosophical beliefs in Acts 17. He says, men of Athens, I've been traveling your city and I see that you got gods for everything. And then he uses their cultural beliefs almost against them, which is pretty baller, but that's another story for another day but that's incredibly uncomfortable. Why? Because he's a Jewish man telling them, you're wrong. See, the gospel compels us to have this new perspective, this renewed perspective on what is uncomfortable. And some might say, yeah, but that's Paul. Paul's like the, the titan of the New Testament. This guy was like a beast. I'm not Paul. And you're right. You are not Paul. However, on several of his letters, we learn a little bit about him. For instance, in this same letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 2, we hear that Paul was among them in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. He goes on to say, "...my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom." In his second letter to the Corinthians, he's quoting to them what people said about him. He says, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So he's like this short, weak dude by like physical standards. Paul was uncomfortable stepping into many of these spaces and did so with a lot of tension Mixed with a lot of spiritual courage to win some for the sake of the gospel. That was his jam. Living missionally isn't about waiting for an opportunity, it's about living out the opportunities God's already giving you where you are. Where you are, home, work, school, it's not random, it's not a coincidence. As a church, yes, we support churches and we partner with schools, and that's great, and we're gonna continue to do so, but why? Just so that we can put it up on some chart, just so that we can say we did some good works? No, because we do it for the sake of the gospel to see people come and know Jesus. You are around friends, family, and coworkers right now who are under the wrath of God. Do we care enough? I don't want to be offensive. Someone was willing to offend you. And that's why you're here. Living with a renewed sense of discomfort is living missionally. And so how do we create this redemptive urgency, right? Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, right? and I want to share in its blessings. And so that's what compels me to share the gospel Nothing but R's if you're taking notes. I would ask to consider four things, and this has been helpful for me, and we pulled this from the text, but here it is. First one is, I want you to reconsider. I want you to reconsider what you might need to lay down or what you might need to step into. In other words, are there preferences that you need to lay down in order to step into certain circles to win some to Christ? are there preferences that you have that you hold up to almost this standard of idolatry i'm not talking about gospel convictions i'm not talking about losing our identity i'm not talking about forfeiting the message of the gospel is not what we're talking about but are there preferences that you can lay aside there are some christians who are highly political in their ideology maybe that's you Are you willing to lay some aside in order to win the ear of someone on the opposite side? Are you willing to step into someone else's political influence in order to gain an ear? Many Christians are all about social concerns. That's wonderful, we need that. Is there any kind of circle that you can step into this week in order to win an ear? Doesn't even have to be that broad. If you're a parent, right? you should be stepping into these circles with your children. So right as the pandemic is ending um, and, and, and more people are coming to the house, uh, my son loves Dungeons and Dragons. I never heard of it, never played it, never did any of that. And so, uh, and so when, when Seth started playing D&D, he was playing it in junior high, and he had a group of friends that he would play D&D with after school. And... Um, a lot of them would start bailing because there was this one position in D&D that had to happen, right? It was called the dungeon master. And the dungeon master is the one responsible for like writing the campaign story, like doing voices and interacting with all of the players and doing all of this stuff that I still totally don't understand. And so uh, they were always having a dungeon master, a, a DM just bail all the time, all the time. And so his friends are coming over to the house And so Seth is real right? Because he's like, man, we don't have a DM. And I step in and I said, hey, I'll be a DM. Tell me what you need me to read. And so he gives me these books in order to learn how to write campaigns and learn how to understand all of this interactive imaginary type stories. And so he sews this wizard hat that says DM on it. And so for three years, I had this DM hat that I would wear. And all I did was we invited all of his friends, right? We invited all of his friends. And then I just came up with like, I don't know what you would call it, like church history fiction. Like I would say, all right, here it is. Your mission is the apostle Paul is in prison, which is biblical. I'd be like, Paul is in prison in Rome. Your mission is to go get him out of prison so that the gospel could be shared in Galatia and Colossae and Ephesus. And so you need to meet this dude called Martin Luther at this tavern. And Martin Luther is gonna give you like some details about this story. And then Martin Luther's friend Peter is gonna tell you about all the different kinds of things and resources you need. Blah, 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 blah. And like, I did that for three years. I'm terrible at it, right? But it gave me this opportunity to share the gospel. With Seth's friends, and it was just really fun and terrible, but mostly fun, but also terrible, right? And so they'd come over, and then all of a sudden, from there, it went to like, "Hey, I think I could figure out how to do these these uh, this D and D type type." potion drinks. And so I would make them like these Kool-Aid things that with egg whites and it would fizz over and it looked like some of the potions that they were getting in in D&D. And then the guys in our community group all of a sudden were like, I want to do D&D. And they're asking me and I was pointing them to Seth and it became this like missional thing for a bit just with his friends. Blah, blah, blah. Parents, do you step into some of those spaces? I'm going to look dumb. No one asked you. Do you step into some of those spaces? What does Paul say? I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might my winsome to Christ. It was never about his convenience. At your work, among your friends, your peers at school, there are spaces that you and I are around that we can step into. None of us are immune to this. So let's reconsider. Number two, when it comes to living missionally, we're gonna go through these really, really quickly. When it comes to living missionally and we're among our city and our community and the colonias and all of that stuff, what is it that we can receive from the city that we can use? What is it that we can receive from our community that is great? In other words, what are places that we can go to that we're going to share with other non Christians, friends, family? For many of us, it's the house. That's always going to be the place that we're always going to do things. Sometimes it's, what is it, uh, Oval Park in the convention center. Sometimes it's going to be on the south side. Sometimes it's parks. What are things that we can receive that our community, our city offers for us? The next one is reject. What is it that we have to reject? right? What is it that we're going to have to reject in the culture, All right? So if a friend says, right, like, hey, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'll let you share the gospel with me. You know, I'm going to be at this one gentleman's club, like, no, we're going to reject that. We're not going to do that. You're going to come to the coffee shop, right? Like, we're going to, we're not going to forfeit conviction. And then finally, what is it that you can redeem? Kind of like D&D, I don't know the whole purpose of D&D to this day, but I do know that I can come up with stories pretty quickly in an effort to just step into the circle with my kid. What is it that you can redeem? The why for the Christian is so that people might be saved. That's why we live missionally for the sake of the gospel. The Wright brothers seemed to have been obsessed with the why in getting in the air. Are we as passionate and zealous about seeing people meet Jesus? When Paul writes, I became, this phrase wasn't some church growth tactic. It was conviction rooted in the person of Jesus who embodies becoming. I mean, isn't that the message of the gospel? that God entered into human history taking on flesh, becoming, it was was as if Jesus was saying, I became like flesh. He dwelled among us. He lived among us. He suffered like us, yet was sinless and died a death in our place and for our sin. I don't think uh, salvation was a matter of comfort for Jesus because if it was, then we'd still be living in our sin. So Christian, Where do you compromise the gospel? Have you forfeited conviction for the sake of convenience? What opportunities has the Lord put in front of you today? Maybe stuff like this, man, just brings about conviction. So then confess that sin before the Lord. And I promise he'll meet you where you are with his grace. And with that same grace, may he compel you to change by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might see some saved. And if you're not a Christian, glad that you're here. You might be skeptical. You're probably watchful. Listen, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. I want you to see your life changed by Jesus because apart from him, you are an enemy. You are estranged. You are orphaned living in your sin and embracing rebellion toward God. Yet, in his patience, in his kindness, he has made a way for you to come and know him through his son, Jesus Christ, who pardons any and every sinner that turns to him in faith and repentance. I want you to know Jesus. Church, contextualization making the gospel relevant, contextualization without Christ is compromise. Let us live for the sake of the gospel in our city and communities. Let's pray. God, once more, we thank you for this time where we get to gather and worship you through song and under the preached word. God, you sent your son to become like us, to be flesh like us, to dwell among us, to live among us, yet he was without sin. Lord, when we consider Jesus, his sacrifice was not about his comfort, but our salvation. Lord, where we are and who we're around is not random. It's where we've been sent. You've given us opportunities by placing people around us, friends, family, coworkers, and so on. And none of this is random. Like Paul, Lord, would you give us redemptive urgency that is promoted by gospel centrality so that we might see some know Jesus, so that we would see people meet Jesus. Father, we confess our indifference. By your spirit, would you help us to put that to death? Would you help us to remember the gospel, the message of something that is not necessarily new, but a reminder, a fresh reminder of what is true? Would you write that into our hearts this afternoon?